Friend, have you been born again? If you're a Canadian over the age of 50, then that expression, born again, a born again Christian, might have more relevance for you than if you're a millennial or a Zoomer. It's a bit of a cultural thing. Uh, I'm 45, so I caught the tail end of this, but my uh, baby boomer parents lived through the thick of it because being born again played a big part in the evangelical and even popular culture in the uh, 70s and 80s in North America. Uh, It was associated initially with the Jesus People Movement and the Christian counterculture of the late 1960s. In fact, the man the Lord used to convert my dad was himself led to Christ by a pot-smoking Jesus freak, as they were called, as in he was smoking a joint as he evangelized him. So there's nothing new under the sun, right? Then in 1976, Watergate co-conspirator Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, gained international prominence. In that book, Chuck Colson described his path to faith in conjunction with his criminal imprisonment, and he played a big role in solidifying uh, the born-again identity as a cultural construct in the United States. So much so that during that year's presidential campaign... Democratic nominee Jimmy Carter described himself as born again in the first Playboy magazine interview of an American presidential candidate. By the 1980 presidential campaign, all three major candidates stated that they had been born again. That had never happened before. But what does it mean to be born again? Uh, I think now that... that Expression has all sorts of negative overtones. Uh, Sally is really religious. She's born again. Right? So that means Sally is a screwball, fanatic, over-the-top, right-wing, better-than-other-people fundamentalist. Uh, I was sitting with a group of 70-somethings at my local coffee shop a few years back, and that's how the term was being bandied about uh, with condescending American southern accents and all. Uh, There are Christians, and some Christians are actually nice, but then you've got born-again Christians. Oh, look out out for those people. Those are people who vote for Donald Trump, right? That that was the context. Uh, But it can't be as bad as all that. Jesus himself says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So I'll ask again, friend, have you been born again? If not, Jesus says you will never see God's saving and transforming reign. I'm outlining four things in our John 3 text today. You can follow along in your bulletin. Number one, what Jesus says about the new birth. Number two, Why Jesus speaks so authoritatively about the new birth. Three, what Jesus must do to bring about the new birth. And finally, why was Jesus sent to bring about this new birth? Listen very carefully. Listen prayerfully, friends. Verse 1, John 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And the Pharisees were a sect 
within Judaism. Uh, they had the popular support of the people, even though it was the Sadducees who ruled the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. The high priest was a, was a Sadducee, not a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were correct on many points of doctrine. Uh, and Jesus would have agreed with these things, like man's moral accountability, the resurrection of the body, the existence of spirits, rewards and punishments in the future life. Those were all things the Sadducees denied. Uh, but they made one basic tragic error, the Pharisees did. The Pharisees externalized religion. They externalized it. Outward conformity to the law of Moses uh, far too often was considered by the Pharisees the goal of one's existence. The oral law, their traditions in practice, though not in theory, took precedence many times over the written law of God. And Jesus called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed sepulchers and vipers. So here comes Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. Okay, just stop there for a second. Why does John refer to the time of day? Undoubtedly, it was after dark, but why include that tidbit? Some people think it's because Nicodemus is embarrassed to be seen with Jesus. Uh, he's scared of what people might think of him, so he comes at night, stealth-like, away from the eyes of the crowd. But when Nicodemus shows up in other places in John's Gospel, he doesn't seem to care what people think of him. Uh, this man is not afraid to voice his opinion in public. In chapter 7, verse 50, he publicly defends Jesus in the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 19, verse 39, he brings spices for Jesus' burial. I, I think there's symbolism at work here. John is a very symbol-laden writer. We're going to see this over and over again. He loves to use light and darkness, day and night, contrasts like that. So even at the end of this section, what do we read in verse 19? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Or, or later, when Jesus is betrayed... In chapter 13, verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. It was night. It was after dark. But John's saying more than that. Judas was swallowed up by the most awful darkness, by outer darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's in a fog. He doesn't really see clearly, but he thinks he does. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi. And Rabbi means teacher. And that would mean a lot coming from a man like Nicodemus. In verse 10, in the Greek text, Jesus says Nicodemus is the teacher par excellence of Israel. So he, Nicodemus is a man of standing. Yet, here's this theology professor calling a carpenter from the sticks, Rabbi. That's all Nicodemus calls him, teacher. It's actually, it's a disappointing confession. Jesus isn't even a prophet in this man's eyes. Jesus is simply a teacher endowed with God's power. He is not the promised coming one. He's not the Messiah. He's not saying that. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know, 
we, that is the Pharisees, or members of the Jewish ruling council, or perhaps Nicodemus was there with some of his students. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Which sounds pretty good, right? Uh, How does Jesus respond to this? And this is one of the hardest things to get right in this passage, following the flow of the argument from verse 2 to verse 3. Follow closely. Jesus responds in verse 3. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. No one can see God's saving and transforming reign unless they are born again. It's such a famous verse, but doesn't it seem a little bit like a disconnect from the verse that preceded it? I mean, how, how does that follow? How do, we, how do we make the leap from the statement of Nicodemus to Jesus saying that? What's the connection? Here's what I think. Nicodemus claims that he can see something of who Jesus is because of the, the signs he's performing, the miracles he's performing. But Jesus insists, no. No one can see the saving reign of God at all unless they are born again. So think of it like this. Nicodemus has approached Jesus and he said, we claim to see certain things. Uh, We see by these powerful displays, these miracles that you're performing, we see in these miracles God's active reign. We see the kingdom in that sense. We see this is really from God. We see that you, Jesus, are a teacher from God, and uh, what you are doing is part of the active reign of God. And Jesus responds in verse 3, Nicodemus, you don't see a thing. You don't understand. You've come at night in the fog. You, You think you see the reign of God in these miracles I'm performing. You think you see the kingdom of God, but no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You don't see God actually operating, actually working. You don't see it at all. You're as blind as a bat. You can't see God's saving and transforming reign, Nicodemus, unless you're born again. Now, for a Jew like Nicodemus to see the kingdom of God, that would ultimately include his own participation in the age to come in the resurrection life. I mean, the Pharisees believed in that. They clung to that. And the predominant religious thought in Jesus' day affirmed that all Jews, every Jew, would be admitted to that future kingdom unless they were guilty of deliberate apostasy, like going off to worship Baal or something, or extraordinary wickedness, then their passport to heaven was already stamped. So Nicodemus thinks he's got it made in the shade. His DNA flows directly from Father Abraham. What more could you ask for? And and what's the Apostle John say, though, in chapter 1, Verse 11 to 13, he's already informed his readers about being born of Jewish parents. He's, ultimately, it means nothing. Right? Look at, go back to chapter 1, verse 11. He, the incarnate word, Jesus, came to that which was his own, his own people, but his own did not receive him. God becoming a man did not guarantee a universal revival with everybody turning to him in faith. But some did receive this revelation. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, 
Because receiving the word of God means to place our faith in Jesus. It means yielding our allegiance to Jesus and acknowledging his claims over us. Do you acknowledge that? Do you acknowledge Jesus' claims over your whole life? To all who did receive him and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority to become children of God. And these people, and these people alone, New City, enjoy the privilege of becoming God's covenant people, God's covenant children. Verse 13, children born not of natural descent, being Jewish has nothing to do with it, nor of human decision. God is sovereign in salvation. No one decides of their own accord, I will be a child of God today. Or a husband's will, because in this day and culture, it was understood that Husbands took the lead in sexual matters, and this isn't some natural birth, but born of God. And with chapter 1, verse 13, John introduces us to the glorious theme of new birth, being born again, born from above, born by God's Spirit, a new blessing of the new covenant that hasn't happened yet, a covenant which Jesus will ratify with his blood, and which Jesus now famously explains to Nicodemus the Pharisee in John chapter 3. So, like always, oftentimes, John introduces us to a concept in his prologue, and then he unpacks it later on in his gospel. That's what's happening now. But do you see what's needed, friends, in light of the satanic, anarchistic, autonomous, de-godding revolution in which we've all participated? Total transformation. That's what's required. Total transformation. What's needed is for new life from another realm. That's how bad things are. That's what's required. New life from another realm. What's needed is the intervention of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity. We must be born again. We must be born from above. Because this divine regeneration in the Greek text is a word that can mean again. Uh, or it can mean from above. Both are true. Both refer to the same thing. Uh, you must be born again by the Spirit. You must be born from above by the Spirit. This new birth, this new begetting, this new regeneration must be the work of the Holy Spirit who comes from the realm of the above. Born from above. Born again. And Nicodemus is totally blown away. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Can you imagine Joe Blow, the carpenter from some hick town in northern Ontario, telling a man like John Piper, you don't have a clue how to get to heaven. That's what's just happened here. Jesus the carpenter from Nazareth, has told Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, that his participation in the resurrection life to come is dependent upon something he has no understanding of. He doesn't have the first clue. That's, that's scary. That's sobering. So it behooves me to ask the same question of every person present, not so that I know the answer, but so that you know precisely what it is that you believe. We need to bring this out into the open. Friend, 
your participation in the afterlife is dependent upon what? How would you answer that question? Your participation in the afterlife is dependent upon what? Is it a matter of being good enough to merit heaven? Being born to the right family? Making a pilgrimage to a certain holy site? Giving enough money to the poor or to the church? Being good enough, being religious enough, being sincere enough. Tipping the scale on the good deed side to counterbalance the bad deeds. What does Jesus Christ say? You must be born again. You must be born from above. Verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Now, don't get scared. That's easy. If we compare verse 3 and verse 5, so where Jesus first speaks about being born again, and now this verse, we see that being born again or born from above is the same thing as being born of water and the Spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom or see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born from above, verse 3. That is, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, verse 5. That's how it works. Jesus is talking about exactly the same thing. Jill, you must be born from above. Esther, you must be born again. Josh, you must be born of water and the Spirit. All right? What in the world does that mean? Born of water and the Spirit. It takes us back to the Old Testament. The full expression, water and spirit, that's not found in the Old Testament, but the ingredients are there. Many Old Testament writers look forward to a time when God's spirit would be poured out upon all people. Remember Joel 2, 28 to 32? Not just, not just prophets, not just priests, not just kings, but all people, all of God's covenant people. With the result that there would be blessing and righteousness, there would be inner renewal that cleanses God's covenant people from idolatry and disobedience. That's a major promise. And when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it habitually refers to cleansing or renewal, especially when it's a conjunction with spirit. And probably the best passage for this is found in Ezekiel 36. 25 to 27. I want us to turn there. This is on page 865. This isn't just another sort of like, not not that any of them are random, but this is not a random proof text going back to the Old Testament. Again, this is one of those texts you really should underline. It's one of the most important new covenant prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Looking forward to this great day, a day that we now enjoy, by the way, and have for 2,000 years, but it hadn't happened yet at this point when Ezekiel is prophesying. Water and the Spirit come together forcefully in this text. Water to signify cleansing from impurity and Spirit to depict the transformation of heart that will enable the people of God to follow Him wholeheartedly. So, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. A promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean i will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols i will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, that is new covenant terminology. That's a new covenant promise. So when Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, what, what he's saying to him is that if a person is going to experience God's saving reign, God's transforming reign, a person must be born from above. It's not their own obedience. It's not their own righteousness that's required. It's not their Jewish DNA. They must be cleansed by God himself, born of water and spirit. You're seeing two things at once. We could never, ever, ever hope to do this ourselves. The situation is dire. What hope do we have of cleansing ourselves that this is the remedy? And the second thing is the grace of God. This is actually not just a fairy tale. It's actually true. He's actually, he's provided this for us, brothers and sisters. It's amazing. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So there you have it, folks. Cows give birth to cows. Kangaroos give birth to kangaroos. Cats give birth to cats. So if we're really going to have this kind of genuine, organic connection with the living God, if we're going to be called God's children, then God must do a kind of siring work. He must regenerate us. He must beget us again, as it were. He must pour out his spirit upon us or we'll never be children of God in the sense that we're connected with him and that we know him. If not, if this doesn't happen, we will always, always be alienated from God. We'll never be his children. He'll never be our father. We'll live forever in the judgment of our revolution against God, our sin, our idolatry, our cosmic anarchy. And then Jesus uses another analogy. It works better in the original because there's a pun. Verse 8, the wind or the spirit is the same word in Greek. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. When I stepped outside today, I knew the wind was blowing. Even though I don't have a clue what wind is, <laughs> or where it comes from, or where it goes, even though I live in the year 2022 and Google is just a click away, I don't understand wind one bit, how much less someone living in the first century. But I knew the wind was blowing today because I saw its effects. I saw dead leaves blowing in the gutter. I saw garbage blowing in the gutter and tree leaves uh, and tree branches swaying in the wind, right? So, so it is with the Spirit. We, cannot, we can neither control him nor understand him. But that doesn't mean we cannot witness his effects. Where the spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. We know Angela Neurlander is a Christian, New City. Uh, we see the holy effects of the spirit's work upon her, transforming her. When we meet genuine Christians, we see by their lives that they're different. So we may not be able to control the spirit or understand him exhaustively, but we can see his effects. We know what he's doing in the lives of his people. 
Christians are different. It's the case with all, all who are born again, born from above, born by water and the Spirit. It's not just a subset of Christians. It's all Christians, all of us. Verse 9, how can this be? How can this happen? You could translate it that way. Nicodemus asked in verse 9, You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? That's what Jesus said about being born again back in verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again, the religious teacher in Israel. Now he says it here. You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Now just put yourself for a moment in Nicodemus' shoes. He certainly taught many, many Jews uh, the conditions for entrance into the kingdom of God. All right, Conditions like obedience to God's commands, devotion to God, happy submission to his will. But now he's hearing a condition he's never heard expressed before. The absolute requirement of new birth from above. But Jesus says that he should have understood this already. He's Israel's teacher, after all. He he should know his Old Testament better. The Bible talks about the new birth. It's, It's built on the teaching of the New Testament. This is an utterly new thing Jesus is saying. So, there we have it. The teacher of Israel comes to Jesus at night in this in this moral fog, and Jesus talks to him about the new birth. But Nicodemus doesn't have a clue. And Jesus upbraids him. Why don't you know these things, Nicodemus? Which takes us to our second point. And we must understand this or the whole argument falls apart. Point two, why Jesus speaks so authoritatively about the new birth, verses 11 to 13. The teaching of Jesus is teaching with authority. He's teaching with divine authority. His teaching is not like the teaching of the scribes or the religious leaders of his day. When Nicodemus, the rabbi, when he had a lesson, when he taught his people, his authority was always a derived authority. Uh, His understanding of scripture comes from the tradition of the elders, the fathers of Judaism. He would have qualified every reading, every judgment with saying, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says that, and now I say this, that kind of thing. How does Jesus speak? He says in verse 11, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. And that's not due to a failure of intellect. It's that moral fog again. It's because people don't properly appreciate who Jesus is, where he's come from, what he's known and seen from eternity past. How does John's gospel begin? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we need to read chapter 3, verse 11, in light of chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 11, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now this contrast between heavenly and earthly It's not easy to understand. I think what's going on is that Jesus 
uh, teaching of the new birth, which has included analogies of earthly things like physical birth and wind, uh, and which take place on earth, uh, belongs to the elementary stage of things. I think that's what's being said. Uh, these are sort of the ABCs of salvation. So step number one, you, you, you must be born again while you're still alive on this earth. Now, now, if Nicodemus is stumbling over this elementary point of entry, then what's the use of explaining all the fine details, right, of the consummated kingdom of God and what it's going to be like when it dawns? I think that is what Jesus is getting at when he speaks of heavenly things, that the splendors of, a con- of the consummated kingdom, the new heavens, new earth, and what it means to live under such a glorious rule. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, there is no point in talking about those things yet. You're not there. You're just a baby in your understanding. You don't even understand your own scriptures. But I know exactly what I'm talking about because of who I am and where I came from. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Friend, there's just no way to escape what Jesus is saying. We may not like it. We may not believe it. We think it's a bunch of nonsense. But all of us must face what Jesus is saying. He's claiming to speak not only about earthly things, but he's claiming that he could tell us what goes on in the very throne room of God. How is that possible? Because Jesus came from there. Jesus came from heaven. God, the eternal son, came from heaven as a man to be born in a smelly barn 2,000 years ago. So I'd say fellow rebels, fellow idolaters, fellow sinners, fellow cosmic anarchists, fellow revolutionaries, God himself has sent someone to us, someone who's tied to God, someone who's in some sense one with God, someone who's come from the very presence of God, Someone who didn't go up in order to get some information and bring it back down to us. He was already there from eternity past and he has come to us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, what we're dealing with here is what Christians call revelation. God has chosen to disclose himself to his creation. He's chosen to reveal things to his fallen creation we otherwise could never, ever know. And not just through a prophet or through a book, but in the person of his own dear son, Jesus Christ. But this new birth Jesus is speaking of doesn't just happen. It's not a matter of God snapping his fingers and human beings are now morally transformed. They're born again. This takes us to our third point. What Jesus must do to bring about the new birth, verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. See, that's how it happens. That's how the new birth happens, right there. Friends, hear me. Hear the good news. This is how rebels and anarchists are reconciled to God. This is how sinners are morally transformed. This is how the the effects of sin are reversed and overcome. This is how death is conquered. God provides for it all in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, there's no way 
that Jesus could have been expecting Nicodemus to fully understand all of this. Uh, Jesus hadn't been lifted up on a cross yet, but Nicodemus could appreciate that he was being told to turn to Jesus for the new birth, just as the Israelites were commanded to look at the bronze serpent for new life. I won't read the text again. I read it earlier, but this account is found in Numbers 21, 4-9. Essentially, the people of Israel complain against God, and he justly judges them by sending poisonous snakes into their midst. The people repent, and God provides a remedy. There's a bronze snake put up on a pole, and if people look at it, just look at it, they live. It's a miracle. They just have to look at the snake up in a pole, and God will save them. Now, there might be maybe two million Israelites in the wilderness. They've got to trek a bit to find the thing and actually look at it. But if they do that, they will live. But here's the important part. It's a miracle provided by God. Uh, the people don't have to earn their way back into God's good books, right? God freely provides it. I like what the NIV Study Bible note says here. It says, by having the Israelites look at the very symbol of their judgment... The Lord is having them acknowledge, this is the judgment that you, Lord, have justly brought on us, and only you can deliver us from it. They're looking at the very symbol of their judgment. And then Jesus uses this Old Testament event to explain his death on the cross. Three years or so before it happens, right? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This, then, is the answer to Nicodemus' question in verse 9. How can this happen? How can this be? Here's how, Nicodemus. The kingdom of God, the saving, transforming reign of God, is seen, it's entered, new birth is experienced, and eternal life begins through the saving crosswork of Jesus received by faith. The only way back to God is going to be provided by God himself. And it's going to be by something else lifted up on a pole. And we're going to have to look to him. What we're all going to have to do is look to the Son of Man stuck up on a pole, lifted up, provided by God, or else there is no other way back. We die in our sins as traitors and rebels. Friend, today, today, look to Jesus, God's own provision for sin. Look at Jesus upon that hideous cross and live, live eternal life. Now, at this point in the chapter, Jesus stops talking. The Nicodemus interview is over. Now John the Apostle, John the writer, takes over. John is providing spirit-inspired commentary, which means the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, the placard you see at baseball games, people holding it up like this, it's something Jesus, uh, isn't something Jesus ever said. It's something John says about Jesus and his cross and the perishing sinner's belief in Jesus. It's good to think this through. We want to have our feet planted on solid biblical ground. There's, this is arguably the most important verse in the Bible, right? We want to have a clear understanding of this. God sent his son into the world as a consequence of what? 
The son's mission was a consequence of what? God's love. Let that ring through your heart, sinner. God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now it's very important we get this right because somehow we've come to the position in the West where we think that the love of God is a very easy thing to believe. Of course, of course, the love of God. You know, and the wrath of God is a very difficult thing to believe. No, no. Is that fair to say? I think it is. It's easy to believe in the love of God, not the wrath. We think to ourselves, God is good. If he sheer it exists, you know, he's a good God. He's loving. He loves me. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job, sort of. Uh, so let me give you an illustration. This involves some, so, some inside information about my marriage to Jill. And, and, and the nature of my love for my wife, Jill. I hope this isn't too scandalous. I hope I'm not shattering anybody's marital illusions. But my love for Jill is not 100% gracious, selfless, a selfless sort of love. It's not. Uh, there's lots about Jill that I find attractive and appealing. Uh, she has lots of qualities that I find lovable. I like Jill, and that's why I asked her to marry me. She has qualities, both inner and outer, to which I'm attracted. There's something about her I don't want to be without. Uh, she's an all-around beautiful person, and it's a two-way street. Jill reciprocates my affection. I don't love a woman who finds me repulsive and who hates me. There's lots of things about me that Jill finds attractive. So when you hear us say, Jill, I love you. John, I love you. <laughs> now, now you know where we're coming from. But ask yourself this. Why did God the Father send the eternal Son of God to earth as a man to be crucified for sinful rebels who hate him? Is there something within you, is there something within me that's naturally attractive to God, that's inherently lovable? So of course, of course, he'd go to any lengths to redeem us. Was God wringing his hands in consternation that the membership of New City Baptist Church might not spend eternity with him? Thus making eternity a less than blissful experience for God. And so because he was gushing with love for us, all of us lovable, lovable sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. No, we are not an inherently lovable people in God's eyes, our sin and our rebellion, our de-godding anarchy, has made us disgustingly ugly. And if we could do something that would make God love us and be favorably disposed toward us, then God's grace, his unmerited favor, would have nothing to do with salvation, would it? The thing is about love is most people feel they deserve to be loved, don't they? I know I do. To my thinking, I'm quite the catch. No, Jill's a lucky, lucky woman. No. Verse 16, for God so loved the world. What we must understand, and this is what 
What we must understand is that what John, the apostle, is marveling at in this verse is not that God so loved the world and the world is so big. He's marveling that God loved the moral order in rebellion against him. God so loved the sinful, fallen, rebelling world. He loved the world, though he doesn't owe the world anything. He came into the world and the world rejected him, right? He loved the world, though we're rebels and idolaters. He loved us anyway because he's that kind of a God. When John uses the word world in his gospel, it's almost always, always, always talking about the moral order in rebellion against God. He loved us anyway. He loved the world because he's that kind of a God. And the purpose of God's love for us is that we might have life, eternal life. Because we don't have that now, naturally. In verses 16, 17, and 18, they speak in a variety of ways about that very thing. The purpose of God's love for us is that we might have life. So look at this again, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, that is, eternally perish in hell, but have eternal life. Or to change the language a bit, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have eternal life, be saved, not be condemned. John's understanding is apart from this sending of the Son, we don't have life. We have death. We're not saved. We're lost. If we don't believe, we're already condemned. What does verse 36 say in this chapter? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Those are the stakes. That's the reality. Friends, we're, we're already a damned race. But God's purpose in sending his Son was to save us, which means our rejecting Jesus is all the worst, isn't it? It means we're rejecting the only means of salvation that has come to us. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says when he comments at the beginning of chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I heard a story of a man who fancied himself an art critic who went to the Louvre in Paris to look at da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Having scrutinized the Mona Lisa, he said, I don't like it. A guard who was standing nearby quietly said, Sir... This is the Louvre. These paintings are no longer being judged. You are. The Mona Lisa revealed the foolishness of that man's heart. And Jesus' ministry will expose who is hostile to God. Jesus will expose whose hearts are hostile to God. What our hearts really are like before God Almighty. Jesus will expose those who do not believe. Friend, Jesus is the ultimate revelation and truth from God. And guilty sinners either come into that truth by faith and live, or they flee from his holy revelation and die in their sin. They perish. 
No one who thinks Jesus is unworthy of their allegiance, the one who thinks Jesus is unworthy of their allegiance, passes judgment on themselves, not Christ. Jesus' crown won't shine any less brightly because you don't believe in him, friend. And you don't need to wait until the day of judgment. The verdict has already been pronounced. There will be a day of judgment, but it will be only confirmed the judgment already passed. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Friend, today, right now, look to Jesus and his cross and live. Look to Jesus and be born again, born from above. Look to Jesus and be born of water and the Spirit. Now, I'm going to close in prayer, but I'm going to do something a bit different. I'm going to tell you first what I'm going to pray verbatim. I'm going to pray a prayer that would be particularly suitable if you've never yet closed with Jesus, never trusted him, never come to know him, never experienced this new birth for yourself. Is that you? I'm going to pray it slowly enough so that you can pray it in your own mind after me. And this God, who is a talking God, who likes to hear us talk to him, will hear your prayer. Let me tell you what the prayer is first, so there's no surprises. This is what I'm going to say, all right? Almighty God, I have lived for myself, wanting my own way, in rebellion against you. I am sorry about that. I've come to see that you love me, that Jesus died for me, and that the Spirit alone gives new birth. Please forgive my ugly rebellion. Please change me by this new birth so that I may love your ways for Jesus' sake. Now let's pray. I'm going to pray it slowly enough so that you can pray it with me in your own mind after me, okay? Let's pray. Almighty God, I have lived for myself wanting my own way in rebellion against you. I am sorry about that. I've come to see that you love me, that Jesus died for me, that the Holy Spirit alone gives new birth. Please forgive my ugly rebellion. Please change me by this new birth so that I may love your ways. For Jesus' sake, amen.